There we go. Uh, the marshmallow test. How many of you have seen that before? Few of you have seen that before. It's always worth another watch. It reminds us that fundamentally, as people, we're not very good at waiting for stuff. That's the thing. Uh, it's true when we were little, and actually, it's a bit of a lifelong journey to get better at waiting for rewards rather than wanting things, wanting things now. Uh, this morning, um, I am going to share a message which is quite unlike any message I can remember ever sharing before, but something that's been brewing for a while and which um, I believe it will be a, a word in season for a whole number of people this morning about further horizons, about further horizons. Uh, we all struggle to look beyond short-term satisfaction and short-term gains. It's no surprise that the Bible repeatedly encourages us to take a, a longer view of things. Here's just a few examples. Uh, Proverbs, speaking to a man tempted, uh, says this, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall. Trying to help Guy understand. Jesus, speaking to his disciples about what they should consider as they reflect on following him, he says this, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you've got enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus says, think further ahead. Another picture that's used of people who are living in the moment all the time is of the waves of the sea, which are a, a, a symbol of being knocked around in every direction in every moment without any kind of consistency. And God doesn't want us to be tossed around like the waves of the sea with every passing event. And one way that we can overcome that tendency to simply to live in the moment is to look up. This is a picture of somebody plowing a remarkably straight line, but not achieving it by looking backwards, because one of the ways that we manage to plow a straight furrow and to take a straight line is to look up to the furthest horizon and head towards a single place on that horizon. Not only looking around us, not looking behind us as this guy is in this moment, but he's only achieved those other straight lines by looking up, finding a fixed point some way away on his horizon and heading towards it. So what I want to invite you to do this morning is to to lift your eyes, to lift your eyes from the moment that you're in, perhaps lift your eyes from the mud that surrounds you, and to lift your eyes to three, I've got three further horizons to describe. And these horizons, they're all further ahead than the coming week. They're all further ahead than the coming year. Here's the first of them. The first horizon is old age. Jesus said, 
It's recorded in Matthew 24, verse 13. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He spoke of the whole of life, not just this moment. It can be hard to imagine what the next year will hold. But God sees the end from the beginning and encourages us to consider it too. Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine the furthest horizon of your life? Some of you may find it easier than others. It can be hard to imagine, to think about the furthest horizon of our days. But thankfully, God has given us some idea of the stages of life that we can expect to pass through. And uh, in 1 John chapter 2, it's got this interesting bit of poetry that comes out of nowhere in John's letter and says this, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And it goes round again. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So we have these three stages of life described for us. Children who delight in relationship, having just come uh, into this thinking spiritually here, people who've been born again, discovered a relationship with God, and are focused on that first love with their father of uh, not only young men, I think women, you experience this too, uh, of uh, then a, a focus on actually winning in life, seeing success, seeing victory, making your way, overcoming, with the word of God in you, strong, seeking increased strength with which to win. And then there's something else that follows. Fathers, mothers less concerned about their own success, less concerned about being strong, actually, um, and more focused, again, on knowing God, who is from the beginning, God who doesn't change. Yesterday, today, and forever the same. So there are different spiritual lessons to learn in these different seasons of life. I want to recommend a book to you. I've not got a picture of it. A book that was once given to me by someone that perhaps knew I needed to read it. Uh, the book's entitled A Resilient Life. It's written by a guy called Gordon MacDonald. I cannot recommend it highly enough if you're thinking about the great stretch of life ahead of you. And there's a particular chapter in it that is entitled... Resilient people foresee the great questions of life's passage. Resilient people foresee the great questions. And he's very helpfully in the book, lists off the deep questions typically asked at different stages of adult life. And I'm just going to share a few of them with you. Uh, here are questions. Well, 
for different stages of life. Some of you will recognize these questions as ones you are currently asking. Others of you will wistfully remember having asked them once upon a time. And others of you may be getting the first notice of what's coming. People in their 20s and 30s often ask, what kind of person am I becoming and how am I different from my parents? Or how, how different am I from my parents? What is worth giving my life's labor to? How far can I go in fulfilling my sense of purpose? Huh. Next question is one that touches the heart deeply. Who are the people with whom I know I walk through life or with whom I will walk through life? And starting to grapple with what parts of me in my life need correction? Those are typical younger adult kind of questions. Questions change as the years go by. People in their, their 40s and 50s do find themselves starting to ask, how has my childhood shaped the kind of person I am today? So it's slightly different from the relationship with my parents, but how much of who I am was just always going to be the case, and how much of it did I ever choose? Why do some people seem to be doing better than me? Can I make a difference to these young people who want to replace me? Why is my body becoming less reliable? And will there be enough money for the retirement years? Just some of the questions that come later in life. And um, I am only taking the following questions on someone else's testimony, because I'm not yet in this coming season. But um, in later years of life, can I stop doing the things that have always defined me? It's a question around retirement and what that might mean. Do I have enough time to do all the things I've dreamed about in the past? How much of my life can I still control? What have I done that will outlive me? Ah, great question. What is heaven like? It becomes a much more interesting question as the years go by. Uh, actually, I have done you a favor by printing out all of the questions from Gordon MacDonald's book. Uh, here, there's, there's more of them. If this has intrigued you, then these will be here. I think there's plenty of them at the end of the morning. You can pick that up, or Google is your friend. Gordon MacDonald, Great Questions of Life. You'll find those. The point is this, that the <laughs> whilst we might feel overwhelmed by the the great passage of life, either as we look forward to it or as we look back upon it, the point is this, that God is there to meet us in every season of life. God is there to meet us in every season of life, and he knows the answers to all these questions, whichever ones may be occupying us. As children become young adults concerned with success and making their way in their world, as young adults become mature and become more concerned about relationships and about others' success. I do you want to say um, that there is a lifelong journey that is not, not even, it, doesn't, it changes from thinking about success and failure somewhat and it actually becomes a growing awareness of our weakness. 
as, as the years go by, we have more reason to be aware of our genuine powerlessness, our, our weakness. It's the kind of awareness that led Paul to write to the Corinthians that when he came to them, he came to them, he writes it in 1 Corinthians 2, in great weakness. Amazing things happened at that time. Paul said, I, I came to you in, in great great weakness. He knew. And later he was able to write to the same church. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Actually, I delight in weaknesses. Wow. He's learned something that many of us have still to learn. I delight in weaknesses, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And then this astonishing phrase, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. Somehow he learned to take the knowledge of his weakness and that powerlessness that can sometimes feel like the, the world's dropping away from us and we don't know how we'll live. He learned somehow to take that weakness to God and found that as he did so, God's strength came in, like it did in Corinth. He went in great weakness, and amazing things happened. And he sums it up saying, so it works like this. (laughs) I've discovered when I'm weak, then I'm strong, because of that relationship with God. There is a journey through life of becoming more acquainted with our weakness and less frightened by it. But there can be as we take it to God. It's a journey often, that we often become aware of for the first time in middle age, but it's there through the whole of life. Some grapple with it earlier in life and some later. So children become young adults concerned with success. Young adults mature and become acquainted with God's strength in their weakness. And mature ad- adults become elderly And elderly people can hold a capacity to bless that is greater than any other generation. If we discover the strength that lies in weakness, if we allow ourselves to be clay in the divine potter's hand, then old age is drained of irritability and despair and instead overflows with love and joy and peace. And the elderly can have a capacity to bless that is greater than any other generation. Jesus said, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And here's a promise that comes from Isaiah. The words of God through the prophet Isaiah, listen to me. You whom I have upheld since your birth and carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. I want to invite you this morning to lift your eyes 
to lift your eyes to the furthest horizon of your life that you can imagine and know that at that furthest horizon, God will be there. God will be there. And he will sustain you. He will uphold you. He will carry you as he always has. That's one horizon, a further horizon. There's another, even more distant horizon to consider this morning. It is the horizon of our descendants, the horizon of our, of our descendants. Um, I visited this place in the week, uh, went out for a bit of a walk and a pray in the countryside. These are some of the Rollwright stones in North Oxfordshire. These ones are called the Whispering Knights, they are actually a collapsed burial chamber from the, uh, from the Stone Age, unsurprisingly. Uh, they're thought to have been placed there about 6,000 years ago. About 3,800 BC is the best estimate. We'll come back to those stones in a little while. You see, the goal of a Christian's life is to be part of something much, much bigger than just our lifetime. It says in Psalm 71, verses 18 and 19, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, don't forsake me, my God. Well, we've got a promise that answers that. And then the psalmist says, Till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. There's a heart that beats not only for his own lifetime and what he will see with his own eyes, but that which is to come afterwards. The next generation must know what God has done. The next generation must know who God is, what great promises he's made, and be enabled to live in all of the blessings that we have discovered as they were made known to us. In Hebrews chapter 11, there is this great list of heroes of the faith who conquered nations and saw the dead raised and amazing, amazing miracles, one after another, and they're listed and their names are given. And then the chapter starts to say, I haven't got time to talk about all of them. There's just, it's just amazing what God does through people of faith as they trust him. And then in verse 39, it says this, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Hmm. Hang on. None of them received. What have been, we, just, we just read, if we read that chapter, all of these different amazing things that happened which were promised and did come to pass. And then at the end of the chapter, there's this little note. None of them received what had been promised, which means they'd all got hold of a vision and a promise from God that was bigger than their own lifetimes. They all died with insight into what God would do beyond their days. And that's how it should be for heroes of the faith. It's not that we expect to gain insight into God's purposes and all of the wonders that might occur in our own days, 
pray into those, work into those, expect to see those, and then on our deathbed say, ticked off the last vision, seen it happen. That's not how it's supposed to work. People of faith are supposed to die full of vision of all that is yet to come for the next generation and the next generation, which has been animating and guiding their actions and their prayers for who knows how long beforehand. That's a person of faith. The horizon of of descendants. We are too given to thinking of history being defined by a few key individuals when the truth is that every hero of the faith had forerunners who went before them, and every hero of the faith's legacy relies utterly on the people that followed them. John Wesley is a well-known hero of the faith, founder of Methodism, uh, student and then tutor in Oxford, Um, Many, many books have been written about him and all of the wonders that God did through him. Uh, He had a great mum, Susanna Wesley, incredible woman. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember if it's seven or nine of her children who died in infancy. And yet she loved the Lord. And she brought her children up, including this one, in the knowledge of and the fear of God. She had a massive... John Wesley wouldn't have been who he was if his mother had not invested in him in the way that she did. There are many others besides. There's this guy, Peter Burler, who you may never have heard of, but is one of the Moravians who took Wesley to one side and said, you don't get the gospel. And Wesley, being the man that he was, argued with him and tried to prove the Moravians wrong and said, no, I'm much cleverer than you. And... uh, let me explain to you the scriptures. And they came round. And there's a wonderful occasion recorded in Wesley's diaries when Peter Burler brought with him three other people, uh, three other Moravians, to say, no, no, really, until you truly trust in God, um, his life won't come to you. And, and eventually Wesley got it. He got it because of, it came to him through other people. And if they'd not been concerned for him, he wouldn't have got it. Here's another person you've never heard of, Anthony Horneck. It's well known that the Methodists formed something called the Holy Club in Oxford, which was a group of students and fellows who got together to encourage each other in the faith. Uh, We sometimes think of the Holy Club as the very first small group that we know in Christian history, where people got together to do something that we still do today. But it wasn't the first. Of course it wasn't the first. I mean, at least Anthony Horneck, a generation before, had founded something similar in London, which was called a religious society, and set a model and a pattern that was tried and tested by Wesley's day. They weren't making it up. They were descendants of those who'd gone before. And then there's a big space that needs to be filled on the right-hand side there. There's no lack of people who we can see as descendants of Thomas... um, Thomas... I wasn't say Thomas Cook, because he did actually take Methodism International, so (laughs) it feels familiar, but uh, appropriate. But Thomas Coke... Uh, actually died on a ship on the way to Sri Lanka, but was in the process of taking Methodism international. Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntingdon, paid for more than 100 churches to be planted, uh, some of which were like the Hillsong of their day, having the best musicians in London. 
She was led to an understanding of the gospel by Wesley. Hugh Bourne was a Methodist of the second generation from whom we get our summer camps. Praise God for Hugh Bourne. Decided that we, they would meet in Mocop somewhere in Staffordshire, I think, and have a summer camp. Yes. There's always a great chain of good people. That's how it works. There's always a great chain of spiritual people, just some of whom's names are known to us, but all of whom matter. Um, this is Anfield in 1984. And what you can see in the middle of the pitch is a huge crowd of people all giving their lives to Jesus for the first time. This is a meeting run by Billy Graham, whom I'm guessing everyone here has heard of. You might not have heard of the other guy in this picture, who is marvelously named Mordecai Ham, <laughs> who is the person that preached the gospel that Billy Graham responded to to discover a relationship with Jesus for the first time. How do you think Mordecai Ham feels or felt to see scenes like this. I want to tell a story that I've told before, but which bears retelling, and some of you will know what it is straight away from these pictures. It's the story of a woman called Svea Flood, who, together with her husband David, were Swedish missionaries to the Congo, of which we've already heard this morning. Um, not to visit gorillas, but to visit people. And there... They went with another couple called the Ericsons. They went to a remote village. And the village that they went to reach, they, they weren't allowed to enter. The chief of that village wouldn't let them in because he thought they would disturb the local gods. So they built their own mud huts about half a mile outside the village. And they'd gone there to share the love of Jesus with people, the message of what Jesus had done with people. And yet they weren't allowed to talk to anyone. They were kept outside of the village. And the only person that they were able to speak with was a five-year-old boy who delivered eggs to their back door. And so it was for a year. Not long after they got there, Svea had become pregnant. For most of her pregnancy, she was bedridden with malaria and after she gave birth to a baby girl, she died 17 days later. Not the baby, Svea died. And her husband, David, was broken. He buried her there on the mountainside overlooking the village and was consumed with bitterness. He gave the new daughter, Ina, to this other couple, the Ericsons, and, and left, went back to, to Sweden, where actually he then became an alcoholic. And his, his story has a good ending, but not for a long time. Then the Ericsons, to whom this baby, Ina, had been given, they too died. And so she was passed on again, this time to an American couple who took care of her and took her with them when they eventually returned to the States. That's the... It's one episode of the story. Then, many years later, this 
girl, now grown to a woman, found, she didn't know where it came from, but a Swedish magazine appeared in her mailbox, in her pigeonhole. She couldn't read it, but she flicked through the pages, and she saw a photo that stopped her cold, because the photo that she saw was of this grave, with a white cross, and on the name of the grave was, on the, on the, on the grave was the name of her mother, Svea Flood. She went and found someone that could read Swedish, who read the story to her. It was about missionaries who'd come to the village of Endelera long ago, about the birth of a baby, the death of a young mother, and the one little African boy they'd met who'd been led to Christ, and how after all the missionaries had left, that boy had grown up and persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village, and how he'd gradually won all of his students to Christ, and the children led their parents to Christ, and the chief became a Christian, and there were now 600 Christian believers in that village. Roll forward another five years, and this lady and her husband attended a conference in London, uh, a Pentecostal conference with thousands of other delegates. And one of the speakers was a guy called Ruhagita Undergora, who was a superintendent in the Pentecostal church in what was then had been called Zaire. And he was from the region where Ina's parents had lived 50 years before. After he'd spoken, she went and spoke to him and discovered that uh, he, came, he came from that village. And so she asked him if he knew of missionaries of, by the name of Flood. And he said, yes. He said, I used to go to Svea Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. She would tell me about Jesus. And... To this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. Just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave on behalf of the hundreds of churches and the hundreds of thousands of believers in our nation. Thank you for letting your mother die so that many of us could live. There's just a bigger picture that we struggle to see. There's a bigger picture. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes to a further horizon. Lift your eyes to the furthest horizon of your life and know that even to your old age and gray hairs, God will sustain you. Now look beyond that horizon to the horizon of descendants. And these are not all flesh and blood descendants as the stories I've told should make clear. And here's another promise. He is faithful for a thousand generations. These roll right stones, best guess is they were put there 250 generations ago. There or thereabouts. And the scripture says that God is faithful for a thousand generations. So we have the horizons of old age, the horizon of our descendants, and here's a final horizon the horizon of eternity. You know, the Bible does not shy away from our mortality. (laughs) Far from. Psalm 103, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field, and the wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. 
the horizon of eternity. It matters deeply for all of us what happens not only to others after the end of our days on earth, but what happens to us. At the end of all days, there will be a day of judgment. A day of judgment for for all people. As Paul once said in Athens, it's recorded in Acts chapter 17, in the past, God overlooked ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, that is, that man, from the dead. This, this day of judgment applies to all people, including Christians. The Greek word for judge and judgment can mean judged in the sense of being assessed and evaluated, and it can mean judged in the sense of being condemned, which is exactly how the word works in English too. We can judge someone in the sense of evaluating them without condemnation, and we can judge them in the sense of and, and there is punishment to follow. We read in John chapter 5 words of Jesus that may throw us off from truths written elsewhere, and they need to be put together with truths written elsewhere. We read in John chapter 5, whoever, this is Jesus' words, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. It's a promise there of not being judged, but it's of not being judged in the sense of not being condemned. And we know that because we also read this in Hebrews chapter 10, that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says there, each of you should build with care. For all of us, our work will be shown for what it is. Because the day of judgment will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. The picture that's given there is of things made of wood and hay and straw and things made of precious jewels and precious metals. And as fire comes upon all of those things, some are burnt up and some are proven to be of worth. The work will be shown for what it is, It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. If I were to sum that up, I would say that the grace of God means that we will be forgiven what we did wrong, and rewarded for what we did right. We'll be forgiven for what we've done wrong, and so there is no threat of the judgment of condemnation for those who trust in Christ. We'll be forgiven, and of that we may be sure. 
But the grace of God also means that there is a reward for what we've done right. And therefore, what we do in this life makes a difference for our eternity. We can build up, as Jesus put it, treasure in heaven. And so God's view of our lives is what really, really matters. I want to encourage you this morning to lift your eyes to further horizons, to lift your eyes from the everyday, from the mud at your feet, from your bank balance, from your current struggle, whatever it may be. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes beyond the furthest horizon of your life where God promises to sustain you. Lift your eyes beyond the horizon of your descendants where God remains faithful for a thousand generations. And lift your eyes to eternity. Plow your furrow straight. Plow it straight towards the Lord. Amen.